1: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
2: Happy Monday. Thanks for hanging out with us. We appreciate you.
1: Oh, my goodness. There she is
3: appreciating you all. There's never a lack of appreciation for you all. I love it. It's beautiful.
2: And it is Christmas week, so, you know, I got to spread the Christmas cheer. Or Chrismica, Chrisonica. if you, uh, you know, you celebrate both holidays.
3: Yeah, for That's sure. Why. You always want to be inclusive. I mean, Exactly, exactly. I decorated my tree, uh, finally, this weekend, and mm-hmm. it looks cute. It just doesn't feel like a holiday. Like, I'm still shocked. I haven't even gotten, like... Like, I haven't even gotten a card from my mom yet Our Christmas gift. Even though she wants a ring light. She's realized that she needs better lighting. And she's asked me to purchase her a ring light. And so I'm, you know, looking on Amazon, purchasing her a ring light for Christmas. She's going to be the next influencer. I guess. I don't know. She wants the bright lights. I'm like, who told you about a ring light? She's like, oh, I need one of those. And I'm like, oh, my God. Here we go. My mom's That's about to hilarious. make YouTube videos.
2: Watch out. She's going to compete with the sleigh god. Well, uh, I I was going to say uh, I, I got my boyfriend, didn't force him to finally get a Christmas tree, <laughs> even though I, I feel like I, as a Jew, celebrate Christmas more intensely than anyone I've dated.
3: Also, it just seems like you as a girlfriend is just very pushy and bossy
2: well uh, that was actually uh, that was a conversation we had this weekend ryan he oh my god it was? He was he's no he didn't say that exactly he said that yes, um he did. my my expectations i have very high expectations of him and sometimes i need to just like bring it down a bit
3: wow wow i hit that nail right on the head God,
2: thanks for triggering i me. hit that
3: nail on the head people
2: You know what? It's okay. We're working through it, but thanks for asking, Ryan. Okay, let's get into uh, some what's trending this hour. And before we do, again, coming up on the show, besides our personal issues, uh, we're going to be talking about how change.org blew up in 2020, plus what public health officials are doing for communities of color to build trust around the COVID-19 vaccine. But yes, let's get into our top stories today. President-elect Joe Biden got the vaccine today publicly and gave credit to the Trump administration.
4: The administration deserves some credit getting this off the ground with Operation Warp Speed. I also think that uh, it's worth saying that uh, this is, is great hope. I'm doing this to demonstrate that people should be prepared when it's available take the vaccine.
2: All right, giving credit to where credits due, I see.
3: Well, I actually really enjoyed that he did this because I I thought one, that was so big of him and it just continues to show how presidential he is while Donald Trump is still frantically tweeting about there being some type of rigged election. I mean, the the comparisons of the two is just wild Mm. for me, but I mean, maybe that'll help Trump feel better is to know that he got a little bit of credit perhaps.
2: Well, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced on Sunday that the four leaders of the Senate and the House finalized an agreement on a COVID-19 relief package. Wow, it took long enough. Congressional leaders reached an agreement on a $900 billion stimulus package that would uh, provide direct payments and jobless aid to all of us Americans and those, of course, struggling and funds for small businesses, hospitals, schools and vaccine distribution. Uh, And here's McConnell making that announcement.
4: Majority Leader, With the information of all senators and, more importantly, for the American people, we can finally report what our nation has needed to hear for a very long time. More help is on the way. Moments ago, in consultation with our committees, the four leaders of the Senate and the House finalized an agreement. There will be another major rescue package for the American people. As our citizens continue battling this coronavirus, this holiday season, they will not be fighting alone. We've agreed to a package of nearly $900 billion. It is packed with targeted policies that help struggling Americans who've already waited entirely too long. For workers at the hardest-hit small businesses, there will be a targeted second draw of the Paycheck Protection Program. We've not worked so hard to save as many jobs as possible all these months, only to fumble the ball with vaccinations already underway.
2: We'll be talking more about this in just a moment right here with the Washington Post. Uh, But California Governor Gavin Newsom, his office announced Sunday that he will re-enter quarantine after exposure to a person who tested positive for the coronavirus. A representative for Newsom said the governor has tested negative, but will enter a 10-day quarantine out of an abundance of caution. And several of his staffers also tested negative, but will likewise enter a 10-day quarantine as a precaution.
3: I was going to say, didn't uh, Eric Garcetti's daughter, his nine-year-old daughter, she has COVID now. So that's kind of sad uh, that we're seeing it really just happening so quickly. But I mean, the numbers here in Los Angeles is wild. So we really need to be mindful of that, people.
2: Yeah, it is definitely scary. And finally, take a look outside tonight because Jupiter and Saturn are set to reunite on the night of the winter solstice. For the first time, it's historic, Ryan, in eight hundred years and it's gonna form a Christmas star. And, and that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news?
3: Well, you know, one thing that Ariana Grande is going to do is one, be in love and two, be engaged. This is your T report, those pop culture stories that are trending right now. The Queen. The pop icon, she announced her engagement to Dalton Gomez, sharing the news on Instagram this weekend, along with a close-up shot of her dual stone engagement ring. Um, Ariana's famous friends, of course, were quick to congratulate the singer on her engagement. This news broke on the eve of her Netflix concert documentary, Excuse Me, I Love You, which I was actually watching earlier today. So congratulations. I mean, hopefully she'll keep this relationship as private. It as, I mean, more private than, I guess, the Pete Davidson one because we really haven't heard much about this Dalton guy but she seems happy and I'm here for it.
2: Yeah, good for her. It's been uh, I think a bit less than a year uh, but also who knows because she could have been secretive about it for a bit.
3: Yeah, and it just seems like she's the only person that I feel like could come out of 2020 engaged or happy about like her year. But um, that's your T-Report. I got more coming up in the show later on.
2: Okay, now we finally got a new $900 billion stimulus package. Stick around for more details next with The Washington Post. Let's go there
0: with Shira and Ryan. The new Channel Q.
2: Well, it finally happens. Congressional leaders brokered a deal on an approximately $900 billion relief bill Sunday night. And here to break it all down is economics reporter Rachel Siegel from The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us today.
5: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
2: Okay, well, let's just break this all down, starting with uh, what is on a lot of people's minds, stimulus checks. Uh, So where did they land with this? And how how easy was it to get there? Because it seemed like this was one of the sticking points.
5: It definitely was one of the sticking points. So maybe to go back to where we were in the spring, the CARES Act and the big push of stimulus that went out in the early days of the pandemic included $1,200 checks. And those really went extremely far for people who were really suffering in the recession's early days. At the very end, so where we are now, the package that we have includes $600 stimulus checks per person that includes adults and children. So a family of four could receive up to $2,400 up to a certain income threshold, and the numbers sort of, they they adjust a bit depending on how much people earned last year. But the fact that there were stimulus checks in this package at all was never a done deal. At times, they were left out of different proposals. At times, as some of my colleagues at the Post reported, President Trump was pushing for $2,000 checks other senators were pushing for checks that were larger than the 600. So it wasn't a given that they were going to be in the package in the first place, but where it ultimately came down were these $600 payment.
2: And you're hearing from economics reporter from the Washington Post, Rachel Siegel. Uh, so let's continue to move down this list because also jobless benefits, unemployment, this has been a huge issue. Uh, and then we'll continue on because I mean, the list goes on and on of other things I want to hear more
5: about. It really does go on and on. Yeah. So on jobless benefits, this was also an enormous priority that would cover unemployment assurance for people whose jobs still had not come back. So this bill will extend benefits of up to $300 a week that could kick in as early as December 27th and run through March 14th. The category of unemployment benefits that cover contract and gig workers is also being extended. And just to put this in context, there are still 20.6 million people who are still on some form of unemployment aid. And that often revolves around industries like tourism, hospitality, services sectors, where these jobs just are not coming back very quickly. So those benefits are going to be crucial even if the amount was lowered from the stimulus that we saw in the spring. And then again, when they run out in the middle of March, we might be at a similar place once again that we have been over the past couple of months.
3: So when I get, when
5: can we expect
3: the stimulus checks to start going out?
5: Sure. So leaders in Congress and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin have been saying that they're going to try and rush these checks out as quickly as possible. Right now, we're what, four or five days before Christmas. So this would obviously be a tremendously important time for families to get that extra help. There are obviously, you know, there are like logistical kinks and there were a lot of people who didn't get their checks the last time around. So those are going to be things that we'll certainly be keeping an eye on. But the push is to get the checks out as quickly as possible, get these unemployment benefit programs up and running, and we'll obviously be watching to make sure that that happens.
2: Yeah, and what about uh, relief for businesses? Because there's a lot of small businesses that are suffering right now with these shutdowns happening in different uh, cities and states.
5: There are. There have been a lot of small businesses that have really just been hit in some cases irreparably from closures and just the fact that the pandemic is still raging. So this bill has a pretty large carve out to help small businesses. Specifically, there's $284 billion for first and second forgivable loans through the Paycheck Protection Program, which you may remember from the stimulus push from the spring. The push also uh, changes some eligibility requirements that nonprofit organizations and different types of news outlets can get help. It also covers churches and faith-based organizations. And so this is really the sort of category of the bill that is most specifically targeted at small businesses that they don't need loans. They need direct grants to try and carry through these really difficult wintertime months while the pandemic is still raging.
2: And and I'm assuming no one's going to get kicked out of their homes uh, because of rental assistance and eviction
5: moratoriums? Right. So that was another point that we were keeping pretty close eye on. So the bill sets aside $25 billion in emergency assistance to renters. And at the end of 2020, we were also staring down the expiration of an eviction moratorium. So what this agreement is doing is it will extend that moratorium until the end of January. So extend it by one month. And then there's also thinking, especially from Democrats in Washington, that by the time that new deadline comes up, that the Biden administration will be in office and might be in a position to extend it even further.
2: All right. Even though the Senate is still going to be possibly uh,
5: run by the Republicans. So I feel like we're going to hit this again. Right. There, There are certain cliffs. And, you know, the position that we were in when it was unclear whether or not there was going to be a new bill by the end of this year is that a lot of these programs have expiration dates and headed towards these cliffs that leaves, you know, millions of people who would fall off of the unemployment rolls or people for whom, you know, a check goes a long way, maybe not, not, far enough, but goes a long way in covering groceries and just day-to-day expenses. So there are a lot of economists who are already saying, this is great. This is a sigh of relief, but it's probably not going to be enough considering how long the tail of this recession is going to be.
2: All right. Well, that was economics reporter from the Washington Post, Rachel Siegel. Thanks again. Oh, thank you so much. Now coming up on the show, a trans inmate has won a federal case to get gender affirming surgery. The ACLU SoCal joins us for that next.
0: Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. After a seven-year battle, U.S. District Court judge has ruled in favor of Nicole Rose Campbell and that the
2: Wisconsin prison, where she was an inmate, violated her constitutional rights by denying her from having gender-affirming surgery. The court has now ordered correction officials to allow for her to make those arrangements. And back with us right now is Amanda Goad from ACLU SoCal. Thanks for being here again. Thanks so much for having me. So how important is this case for trans rights for inmates in prison?
6: This is a really important issue. This is something that's been popping up all over the country. Unfortunately, trans folks are disproportionately incarcerated, in part because if you're suffering a lot of trauma and discrimination, you're more likely to get caught up in survival economies that are criminalized, and you might end up incarcerated on a sex work charge or a drug charge or something like that, and also the criminal legal system is biased. So there's a lot of trans folks, unfortunately, in prison, and then many trans folks need gender-affirming health care. So it's been a, a battle that's played out across the country over the past several years, where in many cases, prison officials are reluctant to provide that care. But there have been a series of victories by folks who fought the the question of, of whether they were entitled to get that care while incarcerated. And Nicole Campbell is just the latest in a string of folks who have been successful. And it'll be great if Wisconsin goes ahead and provides her the surgery she needs. I haven't heard yet whether the state is going to try to appeal to other levels of court.
3: Well, I guess I was concerned while reading about this was the fact that she was in a medium security men's state prison. And How dangerous is that? Especially if she is trying to, and she's obviously won her case and she wants to get these surgeries. Why is she being placed among all of these men when she should be in a women's facility?
6: That is a great question, Ryan. Historically, almost all prisons in the U.S. have placed people based on their genitalia. So trans women got sent to men's facilities. And that can be really rough and really dangerous. Um, There was a study in California a few years ago that said trans women were something like 14 times more likely to experience sexual assault in that situation. And because of that, advocates have been working really hard to change that presumption, that genitalia is the only determiner of which prison you go to. In California, we actually just passed a law to change that. And as of January 1st, folks who are trans or intersex are gonna be able to get to say what feels safer for them, men's or women's prison. Um, So look forward to seeing that change happen. But meanwhile, it's been kind of a catch-22, where if these prison officials are saying, we house you based on genitalia, and then you ask to have genital surgery and they tell you no, you know, that's just like a horrible cycle that folks get stuck in. And that's part of why it's important that the courts are increasingly recognizing gender affirming surgery, it's medically necessary healthcare for some folks. And it's just as appropriate for the prison to provide it as it would be if we were talking about cancer surgery or something else.
2: Yeah. Again, we're talking to Amanda Goode from ACLU SoCal, you know, uh, another transgender female inmate sued the the Georgia Department of Corrections for a second time for failing to protect her from sexual assault or provide her with adequate health care, alleging the department did nothing to change its problematic policy. So I guess at at this point, what's being done federally? Because we're going to see all these cases probably pop up across the country.
6: Well, unfortunately, the past Four years, we've had a federal administration that was super anti trans, and that's played out in so many different ways. But it was pretty clear over the past few years that there wasn't going to be any federal support for folks in these situations where they needed health care and they needed better safety protections. The Federal Prison Rape Elimination Act actually has some protections in it specifically for trans folks. And that includes that they're supposed to be asked, where would you rather be housed, and that their views are given serious consideration. Unfortunately, that hasn't been working out most places, but I would love to see the Department of Justice under the Biden administration really take that more seriously and make sure that state prisons are doing it right. How quickly does that change
3: happen? If they're, let's say, you know, obviously Biden and Harris administration, they're coming in, but how quickly will we see that change?
6: Good question. I think there's a number of things the Department of Justice could do behind the scenes to move that along. Of course, there's so many civil rights issues that need dealing with and cleaning up in the aftermath of the Trump years. You know, it's going to be a long list of of stuff for them to work on. One of the important things about the Prison Rape Elimination Act is that there's money tied to it. States that are not actually fulfilling their obligations to keep people safe are supposed to lose some of their federal funding for their prisons. And that can be a lot of money. So if that were really enforced and states were really held accountable in that way, that would help.
2: I guess, Amanda, as we wrap this up, what is the ACLU SoCal doing? Like, what are you doing in terms of your efforts as it relates to this issue?
6: Yeah, we have helped some folks get gender affirming healthcare in California, um, not only surgery, but in some cases, hormones, where some of the local county jails have been resistant to provide even that, but they need to because it is a medical necessity. And we've also proudly been part of the coalition that passed that law I mentioned about state prisons and where people are housed. So we're looking forward to working with the state on making sure that it goes smoothly and and folks are able to choose what feels safer for them in the new year.
2: Yeah. Okay, Amanda Goad, ACLU SoCal, you're going to hang out with us because after this, we're going to be looking at a new study that came out that uh, talks about how COVID-19 is impacting the queer community. That's next.
0: Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. There was a study that came out last
2: week from the Movement Advancement Project that looked at how the COVID-19 pandemic is placing a huge strain on the queer community, but specifically Black and Latinx individuals. Back with us is Amanda Goad from ACLU SoCal. So thanks again for hanging out with us today. So what did we learn from the study? Were there any surprises here?
6: Well, I think anyone who's been paying attention knows that as rough as COVID has been for America in general, the LGBTQ community has been in some ways disproportionately hurt, especially on the economic side, where so many folks who are queer or trans have been working in fields like hospitality, restaurants, bars, nightclubs, entertainment, and those are some of the jobs that have been hardest hit by what's been going on. So I was expecting to read that folks in our community were suffering a worse economic hit, but these numbers are really awful. Um, And particularly, the study found that Black LGBTQ households, 95% said that they had suffered a serious economic blow in these past few months. And that's really staggering.
3: Yeah, it, it's very staggering. And I kind of want to do a call back to our last segment where we were talking about, you know, a trans woman trying to, well, she won her case to get the, her gender reassignment surgeries and, and things like that. Um, I, I feel like it's interesting to talk about queer folks And queer and trans folks in prisons, and how that even adds an extra layer of disproportionately being affected by COVID nineteen. Are we seeing that as well um, when it comes to them trying to survive? Like, how much is that impacting them?
6: Yeah, I mean, there's so many interconnected problems here. Right. Folks in the trans community suffer a lot of trauma and discrimination and have more difficulty getting the kind of white collar jobs that have been staying stable through quarantine times. And a lot of trans folks, unfortunately, end up caught up in the criminal system. And once you have a criminal record, it's much harder to get a really stable, high paying job. So that's part of it. And then there's similar patterns impacting the Black community, where structural racism and the wealth gap mean that people have a lot more economic difficulty in the Black community. And so if you're at the intersection of those two issues, it's really, really rough. And that's what these numbers are showing us. Yeah, again, you're hearing from Amanda Goad from ACLU
2: SoCal. Uh, We're talking about this study that just came out. And uh, Mm -hmm. one of the things that it revealed was uh, more than half of Black LGBT plus households have been unable to get medical care or had delayed medical services because of the economic strain of the pandemic. I mean, uh, this is a huge issue also as we see vaccines come out. How will that impact the community?
6: We are just starting to hear from states about what their plan is to distribute vaccines and try to make that fair. Um, Of course, right now, it's frontline healthcare workers who are mostly getting to go first, and that's great because that helps keep them able to take care of the rest of us. We at the ACLU have been pushing for this next round that's supposed to include vulnerable populations, that should include people who are incarcerated because they're at particularly high risk and don't have a lot of choice in terms of accessing healthcare. So it would be great to make sure they can all get vaccinated quite soon. And then in terms of the LGBTQ community, it, it tracks what kind of healthcare access do you have in general? And if you've had trouble accessing healthcare, maybe because of discrimination, maybe because you just don't have healthcare coverage right now, that it's potentially gonna be tricky for you to access the vaccine. And we really need to address that for everybody to get vaccinated and everybody to feel safe.
2: All right, well, that was Amanda Goad, ACLU SoCal. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Now coming up, we've got what's trending this hour. A new COVID strain is spreading in Britain. More details on that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, Change.org joins us to talk about how 2020 was the year of the online petition. Plus, what cities will pay you $10,000 to relocate? And is it worth it? Well, we'll debate that in a moment. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. The United Kingdom has discovered a new mutant coronavirus strain. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Now dozens of countries, including Canada, France, Germany, Israel, Iran, Colombia and Morocco have suspended flights from the UK for 48 hours or more. Saudi Arabia has closed its borders and suspended all flights regardless of destination or origin. And crisis meetings are being scheduled in London and Brussels, as officials are trying to figure out how to deal with this new threat, which experts estimate could be 70% more transmissible than others in circulation. Uh, Here's UK Prime Minister
7: Boris Johnson. And of course, we're working with our friends across the channel to unblock the flow of trade as fast as possible. And the government at all levels is uh, communicating with our friends in Paris. I've just spoken to uh, President uh, Macron. We had a very uh, good call and we both understand each other's positions and want to resolve these problems as fast as as possible. We understand uh, your concerns and uh, I, I hope everybody can see that as soon as we were briefed in, in uh, UK government on the uh, the fast transmissibility of this new strain, at, I think 3.15 on Friday afternoon, uh, we lodged all the necessary information with the World Health o- Organization and we took prompt and decisive action uh, the very next day uh, to curb the spread of the new variant within the, the UK
2: now televangelist Pat Robertson is back and going viral, declaring that Biden will be president. OK, and that Trump lives in an alternate reality is very erratic and should not run again in 2024. Here's what he had to say.
4: I think the Electoral College has spoken. I think the the Biden uh, corruption uh, has not totally been brought to to. Uh, of fruition, but it doesn't seem to be affecting the Electoral College. And I don't think the Supreme Court is gonna move in to do anything. And I think uh, we're going to see a President Biden. And I also think we'll be seeing a President Kamala Harris not too long after the inauguration of President Biden. With all his talent and the ability of to raise money and draw large crowds, the president still lives in an alternate reality. He really does.
3: Preach Pat Robertson. Preach. I mean, we just play a Pat Robertson clip not too long ago, and I'm actually um, shocked that this is what he's saying now. I mean, the last time we played him, it was just like he was on the whole other opposite spectrum of this thing, right? He was very pro-Trump. And so now it's just like we must be in the Twilight Zone officially. Like Jupiter and Saturn is really working.
2: Uh Uh-huh. We are manifesting. Now, Pennsylvania elections admins are quitting after a nightmare election. Uh, This comes from Sarah May Selfie, the Monroe County Elections Director, who said it was a nightmare. Everything was a nightmare. And according to this article in uh, paspotlight.org, election day went smoothly with officials reporting few problems. Still, the people tasked with running elections are drained from dealing with regular verbal attacks from angry voters confused or suspicious of the process this year. They're completely burnt out and they
3: want out. And that was What's Trending This Hour, What's Happening in Entertainment News, Ryan. Okay, so if you didn't know, uh, there's a big change happening with Saturday Night Live, and this is your T-Report, those pop culture stories that are trending right now. Jim Carrey will no longer be playing President-elect Joe Biden on Saturday Night Live, passing the torch to a new generation of political impersonations. Or impersonators. Um, here's what he tweeted, uh, making the announcement, saying, though my term was only meant to be six weeks, I was thrilled to be elected as your SNL president, comedy's highest call of duty. I would love to go forward knowing that Biden was the victor because I nailed that ish. But I am just one in a long line of proud fighting SNL Bidens. Um, I don't know if I would say that he nailed it, but oh. it was a moment. For sure. Uh, And I'm actually really happy they made this decision. And yeah, six weeks was a really long time with Jim Carrey as Joe Biden.
2: I mean, yeah, he brought a lot of his typical, uh, you know, uh, impersonations to it. You know, the mask and all these other things like it was very Jim Carrey. However, there were some moments that I was like, this is eerily very Biden. And it was surprising. And, and it's strange as you get older, to have Jim Carrey play that age. Like that's where we're at, because I grew up with Jim Carrey. He's now playing an elder.
3: Yeah. Um, but I also think that. Yeah, I think he had those moments that were good, like Jim Carrey doing a great impersonation. But at other times, it was just Jim Carrey being Jim Carrey. But that's a whole other conversation. Let's move on in the T Report because Lizzo is spreading the holiday cheer. You know, the singer surprised her mom with a new car over the weekend and shared the sweet moment with her millions of followers in a video on her Instagram. Here's a little bit of that touching moment. Okay. Merry Christmas, mommy. Open
1: your eyes.
3: (laughs) I want to do something like this for my mommy. Oh, it was very sweet. I saw this moment and she's very fortunate that she gets to do this. What a Christmas present. I know, right? A brand new Audi, honey. And that is your tea report. We got more coming up next hour. Yeah, what are you getting for your mom? Oh my God! I mean, didn't I say it earlier? I have to get her a ring light. She wants a oh, ring yes. light. Oh yeah, That feels like forever ago. I, know. I was going to say, should get her some Hot Wheels. I'm, no, first of all, no way, Jose. But I, yeah, I'm most definitely going to make her look pretty with a, a beautiful big ring light. All
2: right, she deserves. Uh, now, coming up on the show, how one city is building vaccine trust in Black and Latinx communities. More next. Let's go there
0: with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Experts are saying about sixty percent of people need to be vaccinated
2: to see the COVID nineteen vaccines' effect. But for many communities who have a deep mistrust in governments and institutions, specifically Black and Brown communities, this could be a huge challenge to overcome. Joining us right now is a Vox reporter who covered this, Fabiola Sineas. Thanks for being here.
8: Thank you for having me.
2: So how big of an issue is this specifically as it relates to Black and Latinx communities?
8: It's a very big issue. Every single poll that we're seeing is showing that for specifically Black Americans, there is huge vaccine hesitancy. So people are like, I'm going to not take this vaccine or I'm going to wait and see, you know, just like what happens with other people before they line up. So I definitely say the Black and Latino community is not getting first in line to get this vaccine right now.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's not shocking. I mean, the history of healthcare when it comes to Black and brown folks in this country, I mean, the, the Tuskegee trials, there's a lot of things where I feel like there needs to be trust, right? Um, how do we see that moving forward? Do we see local leaders, especially with Black um, folks, I, I feel like they get a lot of their information from the pulpit, Do you think local leaders like, you know, church um, pastors, bishops should be ones to kind of help get those messagings across to get them more comfortable? What do you what did you find in kind of your research?
8: Yeah, I want to back up to something you said about this not being shocking. Like I see a lot of this coverage as being black people don't trust this black people this but it's kind of like. Let's back up a little bit to talk about why black Americans, why uh, Latinos do not trust the government. And so you talked about Tuskegee. So the syphilis study, I want to say it's probably the most popular one where they lied to about 600 black men about what they were doing in the study. Um, About half of these men had syphilis. Many of them ended up dying from syphilis because the government didn't tell them that they were being monitored to understand how syphilis actually impacted their body. And when penicillin became available throughout the course of the study that took place from the early 30s to the early 70s, they still didn't even give them the thing that they knew could cure them. And so that to me is just a scary, scary thing that happened in our history for so long. But right, that's the most popular one. Then there were other cases, right? The father of gynecology who used the, the bodies of black women to experiment and understand and kind of begin his field and start his field. And so it's, yeah. it's just a very scary thing. And I think just everyday black Americans just visiting the doctor's office is difficult because you don't know if you're gonna be taken seriously. You don't know if uh, people are gonna actually take your pain to be the pain that it is. And there are so many studies that say that pain is being registered differently for black patients. And so I want us to first, yeah, start and, and realize why why these groups are are as reluctant as they are. Like, I'd say that they have good reason. Yes. And then for, yeah, who is responsible, like what we can actually do? There's some studies, like one study that I cited in a recent report that I wrote said that there's hope, right? The more information people get, the more likely they are to basically believe that the vaccine is safe, the more likely they are to believe that it can be effective. And so I think in black and brown communities, yes, through churches, like in Camden where I conducted this interview, uh, they are pairing up with like faith leaders to say, hey, we're gonna have pamphlets at the front of this church, or we're gonna have this kind of information disseminated during the next church meetup. So I think it definitely starts local and getting local leaders to actually put this information forward is important.
2: Yeah, again, we're talking to Vox.com reporter Fabiola Cineas. Yeah, let's get into this Camden City uh, example. You spoke to Camden County Health Director about what they're doing um, to overcome this obstacle where there's 92% of their population is black and brown and one in 14 people have gotten coronavirus. I mean, those numbers are are crazy and ridiculous. So you mentioned they're obviously doing doing it on the ground, right? Uh, What are they exactly seeing that's working and what can we all learn from that?
8: Yeah, so I decided to interview Dr. Nwako because I used to be a teacher in Camden. So I taught there. Oh my God, that makes so years. much
3: sense. You would be a great <laughs> teacher.
8: <laughs> thank you, thank you. I taught there for several years. So the city remains near and dear in my heart, even though I don't live um, in the area anymore. And so, yeah, like you said, Camden is a majority minority city uh, and the coronavirus has definitely ravaged the city as it has ravaged a bunch of other black and brown communities. And so I think the thing that's most telling is Camden has a higher rate of infection than the white suburb that's right next door to it. And so that just tells you so much about the kind of living conditions that um, exist in Camden. So when I spoke to Dr. Nwako, he was just talking about residents living in close quarters, residents living in generational housing. So that's like grandparents, great grandparents living with grandkids and great grandkids. And so that proximity was definitely something that led to the spread. But I think one of the major changes that he saw was that right now with the surge, younger people are being infected as opposed to the older crowd during the first wave of of crisis.
3: Yeah, and it seemed like what they were doing in Camden was like knocking on doors. Is that something that we could see um, the country possibly learning from New Jersey, uh, Camden, New
8: Jersey? Exactly, and that's one of the main things that, Waco was saying is working face-to-face contact because he's like people aren't leaving their homes because they don't have right jobs to go to they're trying to stop the spread and so if people are inside of their homes what's the best way to get them to see that people who look like them locally and dr nwaka was a black man he's like people who look like them locally need to see them face to face and he was saying even when they do approach people face to face. The first time when they knock on the door, usually people don't answer or people will open the door and like shut it within a matter of like seconds. And so he said that what works is going a first time, then a second time, then the third time, and even hanging out in the lobby to get people to be comfortable with, with yeah, with seeing them around. Um, and he was also saying it's, it's wraparound services. So it's not just saying, hey, there's a vaccine, but they had been in the neighborhood giving out masks before. They're telling people where to get tested. They're hosting food banks to say, we're not here to just get this vaccine to you, but we know that it's not just about the vaccine, but it's about these other supports. Yeah, it's
2: a holistic approach, it seems. Well, uh, that was Vox.com reporter Fabiola Zinias. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, coming up on the show, 2020 was the year of the online petition, but did they actually make a difference? Change.org Managing Director Mike Jones joins us for that next. Let's go there
0: with With Shira Shira and Ryan.
2: The new Channel Q. Change.org petitions are on the rise. They've actually seen a boom on the site since March 2020. A petition demanding the arrest of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who killed George Floyd after kneeling on his neck for nearly nine minutes, earned over three million signatures. I mean, that's a record. The results are huge. But is it translating to real-world action? Well, joining us right now is Mike Jones, Managing Director of Campaigns at Change.org. Thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, so great to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, and congrats on such a big year. I mean, I I can't imagine working for a platform like this and just like seeing what you do making such a big difference. Why do you think there was a rise in petitions this year specifically?
1: Oh, I think there's two reasons. The first is just related to the pandemic that we're all living through. So many people are living virtually and just online petitions are part of that virtual culture. So much so that when it started here in the U.S. or really when it started to just like kind of blow up in March, Our site saw an unbelievable number of petitions starting to be created about it. And it continued through this summer when we saw basically a new wave of activism around or just a a more loud wave of activism around racial justice. This year, we're going to have close to 1 billion signatures on the platform and over 130,000 petitions on coronavirus and 63,000 petitions on racial justice. And if you had asked me in January, like, oh, those are going to be your numbers, I would have laughed at you because it's just been... Like, that's just so preposterous compared to what we were averaging. And so it's just been this explosive year of online uh, activism, being online, and people really wanting to change what's going on in their communities, uh, in their country, in their states. It's just been frenetic, and it's been wonderful to see. So do you think this year has made people more generous? I do. I do. Um, I think it's made people both more generous and more interested in figuring out what they can do uh, to make a difference, whether that's, you know, at home on their laptops or on their phones, or out in the real world, you know, or offline, as we talk about it, um, you know, at uh, a demonstration in the voting booths. I mean, it's just been such a frenetic year for social action, civic action, uh, of the election, everything related to the pandemic, everything related to racial justice, that I think this year is really going to be seen as a turning point, both for like connection to social movements, but activism in general.
2: Yeah. Again, we're talking to Mike Jones, managing director of campaigns at Change.org. So I, this is something I wonder. Once, once someone signs a petition, right? Change.org petition. Yep. What happens exactly?
1: Yeah. It's a it's a great question. So there's several things that happen. First, you're joining, uh, you know, a petition starters campaign. So you're you're essentially joining their army of supporters to to call for a change, which means you're uh, you're going to stay abreast of their campaign, of of the work that they're doing to try to win their petition. But more than that, you're actually also participating in an exercise where you're you're essentially contacting a decision maker to tell them you want something changed. So. For example, if I have a petition targeting Walmart to you know give their employees hazard pay during the pandemic, when I sign that i 'm not only going to join with other employees, join with other customers who are who are calling for that, which is is notable i'm also sending a message to Walmart executives uh, through through the platform that we have that's going to let them know hey i've joined this petition signed by x number of people and we're calling for this change to happen and here's why so it's a really clear and easy way to send a message to a decision maker that you want to see something change either with their company or with a law or with something in your city or your state or your country um so yeah it's a real it's a real tangible way to to make a difference and it's also to me this is the most exciting thing it's like the entry point to activism signing an online petition in and of itself May go somewhere or it may not. But when you couple that signature with real world, you know, like... Uh, on offline demonstrations or calls to a legislator's office or calls to a company headquarters, you really start to put together this package of momentum that can be hard to ignore and really puts pressure on decision makers to act.
2: Do you see a difference in terms of offline activism?
1: I see them as hand in hand. They're certainly different in terms of tactics, right? So you're you're signing something from your phone, you're signing something from your computer, Um, you know, certainly different than actually going to, you know, an in-person demonstration outside of a company's headquarters. But mm-hmm. I see them as really working together, right? So like if you're petitioning, um, you, you, say you're petitioning um, a company like Target uh, and you want them to get rid of single-use plastic bags, um, we have a big petition on this. You can you know, certainly sign a letter or sign a petition Uh, and send, you know, send that message virtually, you can tweet at them, you can leave comments on their Facebook walls, you can leave comments on their Instagram pages, all of that offline online sorry, activity is really important. It helps tell a narrative, it helps build power. When you couple that with offline stuff. Like last year at this time, we actually did a huge delivery outside of Target's headquarters, uh, right as sort of Christmas shopping was coming to a close, uh, where we basically delivered this petition urging for the company to phase out single-use plastic bags. You You had that marrying of really smart online activism, the petitions, the social media comments, with the offline tactic of showing up at their doorstep with, you know, petition signatures in hand to give to executives. And when you have that kind of narrative, it's so hard for a company, for a politician, for a city leader, uh, or any kind of stakeholder to really ignore. So I don't see them, I see them as different, of course, but I see them most effective when you marry the two together and really put them in service of a campaign strategy. Wow,
2: so awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today for this. We appreciate it.
1: Yeah, of course, thanks for having me. Happy New Year.
2: Yeah, you too. That was Mike Jones, Managing Director of Campaigns at Change.org. Now coming up on the show, what cities are offering 10,000 bucks for you to relocate? Ryan, wanna move with me? That's nice.
0: Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Would you relocate to another city if you were paid a chunk of
2: change? No. How much would it cost to get you to move, Ryan, right now?
3: Um, Probably close to, if I'm just throwing out a number, uh-huh. uh, probably to 15 to 20K. Okay. All right. Well, a lot of
2: these programs right now are offering $10,000. They're kind of in your range, I guess. That's not
3: in my range. That's cheap.
2: Well, you know, sometimes you got to negotiate and you got to go lower
3: than you wanted. To right? relocate? No, because it costs money in the middle of a pandemic to relocate safely.
2: Okay. Okay. That's true. Well, so here's a bunch of these locations around the country who are saying, hey, come and move to, you know, our area and you'll get some money and you'll live like a cheaper lifestyle. So Northwest Arkansas launched a program this year in the middle of the pandemic. Topeka, Kansas, North Platte, Nebraska, Hamilton, Ohio, and Newton, Iowa all want you to move. (laughs) where they are. Uh, and actually, Tulsa, Oklahoma had this program around two years ago. It was called Tulsa Remote and they were offering $10,000 to applicants who were wanting to relocate. And since 2018, they have welcomed nearly
3: 500 new residents. Grass. Who wants to stay in Oklahoma, Nebraska. I mean, my thing is I moved to Los Angeles for a reason. And mm-hmm. I understand people need to do it because one, cost a living. And if you have the opportunity where well, you're already working from home, not much of your life has changed. And I get it. I see why this could be enticing for someone. Um, but for me, no way. No way. That I, I left a small town for a reason. Why would I go back to another Midwest type of town just for what? uh, Paying cheaper in rent? Like, it just doesn't feel like that makes sense because what if you don't end up liking it? Well, then you take the money and you leave a year later or something. A year <laughs> and staying in a place that you don't like in the middle of a pandemic, I might add? Well, you're not allowed going anywhere anyway, so you're uh,
2: you're gonna enjoy just like the the confines of your four walls. You so might as well have it be somewhere where you're getting paid, right? A I little bit of a benefit. It just doesn't feel like ten
3: thousand dollars is enough to compensate someone to uproot their lives. I mean, just literally to move down the street from my apartment that I was staying at, I had to pay so much money for a mover. Thinking about doing that cross country. I mean, that's probably half of that ten thousand dollars right there. So then, all you're left with is five thousand. So if you're doing the math, what is that? I mean, you're gonna have to put a three thousand dollar deposit down on an apartment plus first month's rent. So that all your money is gone.
2: Well, now you just ruined the dream, Ryan. You broke it down and you ruined this whole story because I'm just it saying. sounded attractive until you broke it down like that. No. Okay, so if it sounds too good
3: thing. to be true, it's well, it is.
2: So here's the thing. A lot of people are leaving major cities right now because it doesn't make sense to live there. The cost of living, as we've talked about, is just too high. If you want to have a family in these places, it just doesn't make sense. And do you want to be living in in debt and also on top of each other in this pandemic era? And actually, according to this Upwork survey, as many as 23 million Americans say they're planning to move because of the flexibility offered by remote work as well, right? So while you come to L.A. because of like, you know, the Hollywood L.A. dream, you could possibly... Achieve that in other places. And even, you know, when you're older, Ryan, you might want to be closer to home as your mom gets older. You might want to live closer to her and you and you want to have that choice.
3: Yeah, I mean, if it works for you, I'm all here for it. You know, I actually
2: saw this. There was uh some of these to move to somewhere in Europe. So for me, that is a bit more that attractive. makes
3: more sense. <laughs> if I'm going to relocate, give me somewhere romantic, not
2: exactly
3: Hodunk, Oklahoma.
2: Now coming up, New York City's Times Square has announced their plans for New Year's Eve and how you can tune in from anywhere in the world that's next on our What's Trending this hour. Let's go there
0: with Shira and Ryan,
2: the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, more on the $900 billion relief bill that just got announced yesterday, plus how one activist is fighting for prisoners to get a COVID-19 vaccine. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Now, for the first time since it started in 1907, you know New York City's New Year's ball drop. It's not going to happen with people in Times Square. It's gonna be an empty Times Square. This hasn't happened since 1907. Really? Times Square, yeah, the Times Square Alliance announced there will be no large gatherings in New York City for New Year's Eve, but there will still be a star-studded event and performances.
3: Well, of course, it's going to be like every other virtual uh, virtual award show or whatever that we've seen uh, with celebrities. And that's that's cool. That's fun. Um, Normally, I would. I I mean, last year I spent my time inside Um, the year before I was out and about this year going to be spending my time inside getting drunk by myself. I mean, we could do a little virtual (laughs) uh, drinking sesh. Yeah, I mean, hopefully there's like plenty of Zooms happening where, you know, at, there's a countdown, like, hopefully we can make something cute happen, but. Yeah.
2: I, wow. I wonder, I wonder if Zoom is ready for how many people are going to be on Zoom that night. Like, <gasps> what if the whole thing shut down? <laughs>
3: Well, I feel like they've had a couple of, uh, they've had some times to really figure it out over the holidays. I mean, Thanksgiving, Christmas is about to happen. New Year's is probably going to be huge, but I hope people are staying in the house and social distancing.
2: And actually, here's a little idea because I tried this out this past weekend. It was so cool. It's called Escaton, and it's this virtual nightlife. So it's kind of like an escape room mixed in with different Zoom rooms that each have a different experience. Mm-hmm. And it was so cool. And you just like go in, uh, and you could jump into all these different Zoom rooms. And there's like uh, a pole dancer in one, a performance artist in another, a drag queen in one, a DJ in another. Oh, that's cool. That's a you really... put in the different codes to get into the rooms. Yes, yeah, so try it I out if do you're that. interested. Escaton is what it's called. Hopefully we'll get one of the organizers on the show before we leave for the holidays because it's a really cool idea. But by the way, uh, back to New Year's Eve in New York, you could download the free NYE app or sign into vnye.com to see what's in store. Now, this is really scary what's happening right now in Oregon. Armed anti-lockdown protesters, including members of far-right white supremacist groups attempted to force their way into the Oregon Capitol building to disrupt a special legislative session designed to address pandemic relief and restrictions. So the groups include proud boys, Patriot prayer and other far right group members. There was a clash between troopers and the protesters after state police declared the demonstration an unlawful assembly and media reports are coming out that troopers were chased off by screaming protesters, many of them toting long black rifles and some say they're occupying the Oregon State House and hope to, quote, spark something similar in other state capitals across the country. Now in 35 states, civilians may openly carry loaded long guns around state capitals. This is happening right now. Uh, Very scary stuff. And I hope something happens and it it is peaceful because uh, what I'm seeing coming out of social media is quite worrisome. Now let's move on to Palm Springs for our listeners on 103.1 FM. Palm Springs restaurants are claiming food delivery services are overcharging and defying city ordinance. In October, the Palm Springs City Council voted to enact an ordinance to prevent food delivery services from overcharging customers and businesses during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well doesn't seem to be happening. According to Palm Springs News Channel 3, both Uber Eats and Postmates have been identified by local restaurants as not complying. Uh, The city's uh, attorney's office has written to both companies and uh, Postmates has responded and indicated that they're in the process of incorporating the city's limitations into its app platform and Uber Eats has not yet responded. Uh, But that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan?
3: So the big question here in the T-Report is are Cory Booker and Rosario Dawson getting engaged this holiday season, Shira? This one's for you. This is your T-Report, your pop culture story, Trending right now so during a lighthearted game titled seasonal superlatives with cory booker with host mm-hmm. K- uh carrie champion and jamila hill the politician was asked whether rosario could possibly receive a sparkly holiday offering here's the answer that i for sure was expecting
8: <laughs> yeah, I didn't know if you wanted to break a little news here, Senator, if you had a question you might want to ask Rosario around the holidays that's about the rest of her life. Let us
7: know. You know it's a blast worse than my mom does. I know. You know. It's getting a little hot. No, not for me. No. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I'm now curious about your situation. So...
3: Um, I guess we're going to have to wait a little bit longer to see Corey and Rosario tie the knot. It's not happening. Sherry, you got a chance still.
2: Oh, I'm going to slide in. Just slide <laughs> in right there. No, uh, well, well, I do love Corey Booker. He's uh, I am so happy for them. They are a couple
3: goals, and they're very sweet. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. Uh, he needs to figure it out because they ain't getting younger. So I don't know what. That's true. He got commitment issues or something, honey, but he need to go ahead and tie that knot. Um, that's your T-Report, those pop culture stories that are trending right now. Let's go there with Shira
0: and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Wrapping up the show
2: as we always do with our yes queen of the day.
0: Yes. Queen.
2: A shout out to Eddie Izzard. The gender fluid comedy legend announced that she is now exclusively using she pronouns. Now, the 58 year old was referred to with she pronouns when she appeared on the Sky Arts reality series Portrait Artist of the Year by the other guests and host Steven Mangan. And when asked why she wanted to appear on the series, she said, I try to do things that I think are interesting. This is the first program I've asked if I can be she and her. And it's a little transition period. And she says, it feels great because people assume that they just know me from before, but I'm gender fluid. I just want to be based in girl mode from now on. So Izzard has identified as both transgender and gender fluid since at least 2016 when she said she uh, was somewhat boyish and somewhat girlish. I, I identify with both, but I fancy women. she said. She also said that she uses the term transgender as an umbrella term and has called herself a lesbian trapped in a man's body several decades before she said that she was gender fluid. So congrats to Eddie Izzard. She's an amazing actress and performer. And that's so just great that she's finally coming out officially.
1: All right,
2: well, kudos to her. Yes, and now, finally, what I teased, uh, this video from Emily Sen, who's a cruise ship singer and performer. She's going viral on TikTok with this song about the COVID-19 vaccine and hesitation to get it.
0: Cassician hot dogs and Coca-Cola, meat from a can and all diet soda. Breathing in bleach fumes each time that you clean. These are things worse than a COVID vaccine. They can't track you when they want to.
2: Scientists aren't bad. They're simply trying to get us COVID-free. So our lives are
4: not so
2: sad. Quite catchy. I mean, I just laughed so hard when I heard this. Uh, it's really uh it's really hilarious. And it actually also makes sense.
3: I mean, it's creative for sure, but I just love that sheer lucky has the humor of a twelve year old. It's a really anything can make no. her giggle. Anything can really make no, her giggle. No, wait. Let's be
2: clear. This person is not twelve. She is a woman. I know. There are a lot of people on TikTok that are not teens anymore. It's for I, all generations. I'm not saying
3: I'm not saying that I said what can make you giggle is like the humor of a 12-year-old. That is what I see for you, and I love it. I'm happy you, you like it. I love well, it. Thank you for accepting me, Ryan. I've been waiting for that... Yeah, I guess. it's. I, I literally feel like I have no other choice at this point.
2: <laughs> all right. Well, uh, that does it for our show today, officially. But we are back tomorrow bringing you all the latest what's trending in the news and why immigrant communities shifted red during this election, and how that will guide Democratic strategists moving forward. Plus, as we wrap up the year, we're looking at the biggest cultural moments of 2020. That is coming up tomorrow live here on Channel Key, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. And remember, we post all our shows and interviews as a podcast. So what are you doing with your life? Join our podcast family. Just go to the radio.com app and search Let's Go There. And also, of course, where all podcasts are available. Now we are sending you love and lights. And
3: honey, remember to slay.
0: And stick around for Love Line with Dr. Chris right after this. Bye, y'all. Let's go there with Shira Lazar and Ryan Mitchell
2: on Channel Q. On the next show, why immigrant communities shifted red during this election and how that
3: will guide Democratic strategists moving forward. Plus, was 2020 a big waste? Well, we're going to look at the biggest cultural moment of the year.
0: Listen live weekdays, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Channel Q or on your own time with the Let's Go There podcast on the radio.com app.